Charles Spurgeon once said, The road to sorrow has been well trodden. It is the regular sheep track to heaven, and all the flock of God have had to pass along it. The road to sorrow, in one sense, is an experience undertaken by every human being on the planet. Everyone, regardless of religious beliefs, academic achievements, economic status, gender, or age, everyone will face the undesirable experiences of pain and disappointment in sorrow. Be it physical pain, mental anguish, loss of job, loss of prestige or status, relationships severed, the loss of good health, even the loss of loved ones in death, or all these above. Sorrow and suffering is known by everyone, but it is desired by no one. No wonder Job said in Job 14, verse 1, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. And the famous 19th century London preacher, Mr. C.H. Spurgeon, specifically refers here to the road to sorrow as the road that has been well trodden. It has been well walked down. It has been well ridden down by the flock of God. The well-ridden, regular sheep track, as he calls it, that each sheep must walk along as they make their way to heaven. Who is the flock of God that Mr. Spurgeon is referring to? It's Christ's sheep. It's Christians. Christians like many of us sitting in this building this morning. Sinners whose eyes have been opened Ears have been unplugged. Hearts have been opened up to believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God and that He is the supreme master of our lives. Those who see Jesus as their Savior and the Good Shepherd of our souls. These are the precious adopted children of the eternal kingdom who belong to the flock of God. Sheep that belong to King Jesus. Sheep that Jesus knows personally each by name. Mr. Spurgeon was one of those sheep. And Mr. Spurgeon was and remains well known for his fruitful ministry and for his large and expansive influence for the name of Christ, uh, both across the pond in Europe and all around the world. An influence that greatly impacted thousands and thousands of people, uh, both in his own generation as well as generations that have followed him, even down to today in June of 2023. But beyond his books, sermons, magazines, orphanage, and dozens of other ministries that he and his fruitful church, his growing church produced, C.H. Spurgeon would also write clearly, frankly, and humbly about his road to sorrows. About his immense sorrow that he experienced in his own life whether it was from the life-altering tragedy he experienced from preaching at one event when several people were killed at the Surrey Garden Music Hall on October 19th of 1856 because of a few hecklers in the crowd that caused a stampede to kill some of his congregants, or from the heartbreaking betrayal of friends in the ministry, 
Some men he discipled in his own pastor's college betrayed him. Public slander from critics in London and in the surrounding newspapers, or even his own wife, Susanna, who was bedridden with health challenges for years during his ministry. And then there was his own challenges, his painful bouts with the gout and with depression. And because of his well-trodden path of suffering and sorrows, Charles Spurgeon was a man who could truly sympathize with sufferers because he knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it felt like to have moments in his life, even prolonged seasons in his life, even as a man of God, of what it meant like to be brought low, even to the very depths of inexplainable sadness. In case you're not familiar with Spurgeon's battle with depression, I'll share a sampling of quotes from his own mouth uh, that show us that someone can be mightily used of God, like Spurgeon, and yet be very weak and human, like us. If you'd like to read more about his battle with depression, some of these quotes kind of stimulate your interest. You could read Zach Eswine's short book, Spurgeon's Sorrows. Zach Eswine, Spurgeon's Sorrows. Or you can read his larger volume of lectures to my students, the chapter entitled, The Minister's Fainting Fits. Listen to what he says. Quote, I am the subject of depressions of spirit, so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I do. Another time he said, we very speedily care for bodily diseases. They are too painful to let us slumber in silence, and they soon will urge us to seek a physician or a surgeon for our healing. Oh, if, it, if we were as much alive to the more serious wounds of our inner man. And again, personally, I know that there is nothing on earth that the human frame can suffer to be compared with the despondency and prostration of mind. In a very graphic way, listen to what he said, quote, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Brothers and sisters, how about you? Do you resonate in any way with Mr. Spurgeon? Have you ever experienced a prolonged melancholy? As if the sun is shining on everyone else's life, but a cloud of despair follows you like a shadow you can't shake. What sorrows has our good shepherd led you to and through on the road to heaven? so far? Are you at a low time in your life spiritually right now? Do you feel like everything is dark and you are spiritually dry as a bone? If you are or you're trying to help someone who is, what is our hope then? What's the answer? What are we truly hoping will change? That will bring us peace and joy. 
What must we place our hope in? Even when life's unhappy business comes storming our way. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 268. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation in my God. This is God's word. Psalm 42 is one of the many psalms of lament in the Psalter, with the psalms being the songbook and really the prayer book in many ways for the people of God. We discover how saints today, Christians today, and saints from of old, hundreds and even thousands of years ago, have more in common than we think. We have more in common with what it is to experience the roller coaster of ups and downs with our faith in God. And Psalm 42 is one of those psalms that touches on this all-too-common reality that is very real and very personal. One helpful point to note, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together have been considered one psalm by many, uh, seeing that the same themes show up in both psalms. In fact, you'll even see the same verse refrain recur in both psalms. So look briefly with me. Psalm 42, verse 5. 
Why are you cast down in my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Look at verse 11, Psalm 42, 11. Why are you cast down in my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then look over at Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and in my God. So in one ways, preachers can preach 42 and 43 together. I'm primarily focusing on 42, but we'll allude to 43 to help kind of expand and echo on what's going on. But Psalm 42, left right by itself, it still leads us to the same goal as both Psalms do together. In Psalm 42, we see in the heading that it's an instructive or teaching psalm, a psalm that is to teach us something, how to do something, uh, but it also is a psalm of lament. It is to teach us something about God and us in the midst of sorrow. Uh, And it's actually a psalm not only to teach us, but it's a psalm to sing. And that's why we did that in the prep song this morning. Lord from sorrows deep I call is taken from Psalm 42. Uh, We read there in the heading to the choir master or the music leader, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Uh, What is a mascal? Uh, The word mascal is related to the word that means to make wise or prudent. It means it's an instructive or contemplative psalm. And it was a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now, who is Korah in the Bible? Well, Korah's up there in those top five stories that leave most Bible readers stunned. Uh, Korah, back in Numbers 16, along with 250 men or so, rebelled against God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. And as a result, thousands were eventually put to death in judgment by God as a result. But the sons of Korah were ancestors of Korah, born much later in Israel's history, In the days of King David and King Solomon, they served as musicians and gatekeepers at the tabernacle. If you want to learn more about the sons of Korah or the Korahites, you can read 1 Chronicles 6, 22 to 38, 1 Chronicles 9, 19 to 34, and 1 Chronicles 26, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 6, 9, and 26. The sons of Korah were also still ministering at the temple, even in the days of King Jehoshaphat, more than a century after King David. And you can look at 2 Chronicles 20, verse 19, to see them leading the nation of Israel in song. Being that the sons of Korah were also singers, it's possible that they did not write this psalm, but they led the people of God in singing this psalm. Either way, we find great comfort, whether we're reading this psalm or singing the truths from it, as we've already done this morning. Uh, Being an instructive psalm, Psalm 42 raises a difficult question for all of us to navigate through. And that question is this. How do we face an unhappy present when the past seemed so good in our life and the future seems so grim and hopeless. What do you do when what you know is true about God intellectually is disconnected from how you're feeling inside in your heart? 
Here's the main idea of this morning's sermon. I'll repeat it twice. When God feels distant and our hearts are discouraged, we listen less to ourselves and talk more to ourselves about our hope in God. When God feels distant and our hearts are discouraged, we listen less to ourselves and talk more to ourselves about our hope in God. In Psalm 42, we see the cry of a spiritually dry and thirsty soul. It's a soul that is earnestly seeking God for help. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's not entirely clear what the background and historical setting is that the psalmist finds himself in. But we are given a few clues by the poetic imagery, a few descriptions of people, and a few geographical locations that are mentioned. In verse 1, he appeals to a common animal that many men get, get excited about in November. It was a common animal found in Israel too, not just the backwoods of Arkansas, a deer. But the picture we're given is not of a deer you want to mount on your wall. It's the picture of a deer that is exhausted. He's spent. He's weary. This deer is thirsty and to the point of panting. You know what panting means, right? It means to breathe rapidly, heavily, on the brink of dehydrating oneself. This deer is longing to have his thirst satisfied, his thirst quenched by the flowing streams of a cool and abundant supply of water. But the scene before the deer is that of a dry place. There's no water to be found anywhere near this deer. And unless the heavens open up and rain pours down, or unless someone directs the deer towards a pool of water to quench his thirst, this deer may very well be counting down his last days potentially even his last hours of living on earth. This water-seeking deer serves as a picture for us. It's the picture of someone who is spiritually drying up. It's someone who, unless their thirst in their soul is satisfied... They feel like they're fighting with their last breath for survival. This survival is not a bodily survival, but a faith in God survival. Another clue about the setting of the psalm is that it appears the psalmist is also being antagonized and verbally attacked by those who do not love God, that do not love his God. In verse 3, these unidentified people mock him. And they do so in a dark and desperate time where God feels very distant from him. Look at there in the second half of verse 3. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And again, look over at verse 9, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10. 
He says, why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Again, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are generally said to be written by the same person referring to the same theme. Look over in Psalm 43. Look at Psalm 43, verses 1 and 2. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Whoever these people are, they are enemies of God. Regardless of whatever they profess to believe or whatever religious affiliation they say they have, these people show by the fruit of their speech, they do not fear God. They don't know Him. They're spiritually dead towards the living God. Friends, sometimes somebody will tell you, you can't judge me. You can't judge a book by its cover. You're right. But Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. We're not the final judge of anyone's soul. But Jesus did tell us, hey, here's a heads up. You want to know who belongs to me? Look at the overflow of their mouth. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And these people, they use their mouths to oppress. They use their mouths to persecute. They use their tongues to deceive, lie, harm, and slander people. Innocent people. And because they are callous, they don't have any feeling anymore of right and wrong. They're cold-hearted. They just don't care. Lacking compassion and lacking love for the people of God, they look at their discouragements and they take advantage of it. When they're weary, when they're tired, just like the spirit, spiritual dry soul of the psalmist is. And then they go after them. Right when they're weak, right when they're vulnerable, they dogpile more shame, more false blame, and more pain on top of them. Friends, this is the definition of verbal abuse. It's when we use words to beat people down. It's dehumanizing. These men, whoever they were, were verbal bullies. And we recognize that by the speech in their life. They, in essence, add to the weariness the psalmist is already experiencing through relentless words of discouragement and demeaning language. All day long, it says... A steady stream of false accusations and hateful speech. An endless text thread with words that mock his faith, mock his character, and mock his God. Did you notice there in verse 3? All day long. They don't stop. They shout in the psalmist's ear, where is your God? I remember counseling a woman one time who's in a deeply troubled marriage. She shared with me in a really difficult situation with this 
husband of hers who called himself a Christian and was a member of another local church, her husband was mocking her in the kitchen and intimidating her in the kitchen. At one time, using aggression and a whole stream of hateful speech, he even looked up in the air and dared God to strike him down. And when nothing happened, he looked at the woman I was counseling with a creepy laugh, insulting that her faith was worthless. That her God could be mocked and he would do nothing about it. Putting her faith under his shoe and squashing it on top of the years of verbal abuse he had hurled at her. Friends, that type of speech towards God and other humans is demonic. It's devilish. It's inexcusable. It's demeaning. It's dehumanizing. He appears to be mocking and taunting and agonizing the psalmist's faith. But listen, it's by more than one person. Enemies is in plural. Opponents and adversaries in plural. That means they've influenced others to gang up against the psalmist. Brothers and sisters, the bolder you are in your Christian faith, the more pushback you're going to face for your faith. The bolder you are in your Christian faith, the more pushback you're going to face for your faith. The more you and I speak up for the name of Christ, and the more you and I build our lives, and our families, and our marriages, and our finances, and how we spend our time, and how we plan for the future, the more we build our lives upon the rock of God's Word, the more you and I will experience the intense pushback from the spiritual forces of evil. Friends, it can come from very unlikely places that you never thought would come to. It may come from your spouse. You know most abuse happens in homes. Do you know why? Because it's private. No one else can see it. Your children, your parents, your boss, an old friend that just doesn't jive with your new zealous love for Jesus, maybe even a deceived false convert, maybe someone who's a member of another church who shows by their true colors their unrepentant sin and disdain for godly correction. Their disdain for godly accountability. Friends, it's going to be coming more and more from our government. It's going to be coming more and more from the companies that you work for. I have members of this church right now just showing me snapshots and emails of the LGBTQ agenda that many of these corporate companies are pumping through inboxes to try to get people to aside with their agenda. Friends, this is persecution against Christianity. Wake up. It is time to have the antennas up. And if you get bold, you mention the name of Jesus. If you start saying, hey, I want some emails sent out for King Jesus. I want some emails sent out for Bible studies in the break room. I pray that God would open up doors that you can't. But don't be surprised if you get pushback in the public arena. It's coming. But whoever it is, 
Friends, we don't let that intimidate us. Let that fuel us to pray and to ask God for boldness to stay faithful. Let the intensity of the battle not cause us to be cowards and run from the front lines, but to lean in and to know the Bible better. The sword of the Spirit. So friends, when those hateful, division-causing, deceitful lies are hurled our way, may it drive us to put on Christ-likeness, to put on the armor of God, to be on high alert with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are contending for the faith and fighting for your joy and faith with you. Now listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, verses 16 to 20. He says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Uh, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Friends, spiritual warfare is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's more real than you and I sitting in these chairs this morning. Friends, we need the armor of God. We need to put on Christ's likeness. The Lord will fight our battles and he will use his people and work through his people to contend for the faith. Friends, we've already got the winner on our side. Let's act like it. Let's stand firm and know that Jesus is, will continue, and will build his church. But the psalmist describes another clue that helped us grasp a little bit of why he felt distant from God. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Mount Hermon is referring to a mountain range in Israel, about 170 miles north of Jerusalem, and about 70 miles north of Galilee. Mount Hermon, the highest peak, is over 9,000 square feet above sea level. Mount Mazar, most likely referred to a specific peak in the Hermon Range. And of course, the land of Jordan is referring to the land just north of the Jordan River. The significance mentioning these locations is that the psalmist finds himself at a long distance from Jerusalem where the temple was located, where the house of God is what the temple is often referred to back even in verse 4. The temple or the house of God was the pinnacle physical structure that God called his old covenant people to draw near to. In fact, three times a year, the annual feast of the Jewish people, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. It was unique times in Israel's Uh, you might say, church calendar, to come to Jerusalem and to behold through sacrifices, offerings, and feasts the very Shekinah glory, the presence of God among them. And this is what is breaking the heart of the psalmist. This is why he's crying out. He's panting. He's longing. He's thirsting for He's thirsting for the presence of God. He's thirsting to be near his God. 
He's longing to be singing that new song with joy and gladness and thanksgiving that would often accompany these feast weeks. He's yearning deep down inside to be happy and joyful in God and with God once again. Have you been there yet? Have you gone away in that secret place? As Jesus refers to that secret room, Matthew 6, or to go off in solitude just simply seeking the Lord. You see, the psalmist is desperate, but you know what the psalmist got right? He was desperate for the right person. Who does the psalmist want to be near to and know more than anyone else in his life? He wants to be near the presence of God, his maker, his refuge. He's the fountain of living waters. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Fellow Christian, would others say that God is the one your heart is most poured out towards? Would others say that your relationship with God is the most obviously important relationship in your life? Would others say that the God-man, Jesus in all his glory, is the object of our affections? He is the object of our cries, our prayers. He's the very motivation for living and pursuing anything in this life. Or is it something or someone else that has caught our heart? Thomas Manton once said, enjoying fellowship with Christ is the goal of all our effort. To serve God is one thing, but to seek Him is another. To serve God is to make Him the object of worship. To seek God is to make Him the end of worship. There are many who hover about the palace that do not speak with the prince. Beloved, Psalm 42 is the cry of someone who genuinely loves God. They don't just want to serve God, though that's good. They don't just want to be counted amongst God's people in the crowd, though that's useful and good too. They want to seek Him. They want to know Him. Psalm 42 is the cry of someone who doesn't only want to be busy in church activities. They want to commune and sit at the feet of Jesus who is ordering the universe by the word of his power. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we try to get every new member in the right mentality is I say this in the membership class over and over again. The greatest thing you can offer this church is not your gifts and service. The greatest thing you can offer this church is your prayers and opening up your life to other believers that we might seek this God together. We can be busy in church activities and be dying in Christ on the inside. Oh, friends, pray for every member of this church, especially those, including your pastor and elders and deacons and teachers, that we don't get so busy spending ourselves for people if we're not first drinking down from the fountain of life ourselves. Friends, we can forsake our first love and still outwardly be looking faithful to Jesus. And we don't want that. Friends, the psalmist here, in the midst of seeking God, he's also acknowledging he's spiritually depressed. He's dehydrated. God feels distant. God feels removed. God feels absent. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I will go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Here the psalmist recounts of good days gone by. A different year back in the day of his life. A different chapter in the book of his life on his journey towards heaven. It was like looking at a photo album for us. If you're like 35 or older, you know those big, gigantic books we used to look at and cherish pictures. All the young people, you don't know what that is. You pull out a smartphone and Google tells you what happened three years ago. Regardless, we look at pictures and we see ourselves smiling, happy. Maybe in a time in our life we were doing well spiritually. And then it hits us like a ton of bricks. Why were those days so much better than they are now? Friends, is that where you find yourself today? Is nostalgia your middle name? Is longing for the past like a movie? that keeps replaying in your mind over and over and over again. Is that what your thought patterns have been like lately? Wishing you could relive the past? Wish you could freeze a moment in time and never leave it? Do you find yourself wishing to go back to a certain place with certain people at a certain stage in your life when life just seems so much better? than it does right now. That's where the psalmist here finds himself. Those were wonderful days, days where his joy in God was overflowing, the praise of God was on his lips, the worship of God was the end of all he did, and he wasn't secluded or isolated either. He was with the people of God, worshiping and fellowshipping in the presence of God. The psalmist was close with his God, and life was good with his God. But notice he says this, these things I remember. 
these things I recall, these memories of much better days spiritually in my relationship with God, they're all in the past now. And now we return back to that threefold refrain again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you turmoil within me? Friends, if you're taking notes, I want to raise two questions and then walk us through the passage again to see how Psalm 42 would answer them. I know I'm sweating profusely. This reminds me of an outdoor tent revival when I was 13. I'm reliving my teen years. If you want to hit a fan or do some hallelujahs and amens, it'll remind me of South Georgia. I told you I was Southern. (laughs) Moving on. Question number one. What are signs or symptoms of being diagnosed with spiritual depression? What are signs or symptoms of being diagnosed with spiritual depression? Question number two, what is the treatment and cure for those experiencing spiritual depression? What are the signs, I'm sorry, what are the treatment and cure for those experiencing spiritual depression? Question number one, what are the signs and symptoms of being diagnosed, if you will, with spiritual depression? Sign number one, a spiritually dehydrated soul. A spiritually dehydrated soul. Notice there in the verse, two verses, how the psalmist alludes primarily to the core of his issues, to his spiritual life with God. Look at me again, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirst for God. When he says my soul, he's referring to his very being. His existence as a living human creature. In the Hebrew scriptures, different than the Greek writings and Greek understanding of the soul and the body, the word for soul is nephesh. It's the same word used for describing the first man, Adam, when God brought him into existence. Listen to Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a nephesh, a living creature, often translated soul. Spiritual depression is often characterized in one of two extremes. Spiritual apathy on one end of the spectrum. I don't feel motivated. I just don't really care all that much right now about seeking and knowing, even obeying the Lord. But on the other end of the spectrum, it could be immense sadness, even fear of not feeling close to God anymore at all. That's why in verses 6 and 7, he's watching in the psalm, rushing waters from Mount Hermon, pouring off into the Jordan River, and the river is speaking a sermon that gives him a picture of what's going on inside his soul. And verses 1 to 5, he is dry as a desert. In the last half of the psalm, he is drowning on the inside. Look at me at verses 6 and 7. 
My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And notice, though the psalmist is spiritually depressed, notice who he rightly acknowledges is behind his time of sorrow. God is still sovereign over his life in that moment just as he was in his past. Deep calls to deep. He's hearing the waters pouring into the river and he's looking at the river going, that's what I feel like. I'm drowning inside. I'm suffocating inside. I'm not going to make it. But the psalmist is like a nine or ten point Calvinist. He believes in the sovereignty of God over everything. Whose waterfalls, whose breakers, whose waves are causing him to drown? He says, your waterfalls, not Mother Nature, not the natural world, not accident, not happenstance. You are drowning me. You are putting me under. You are causing me to have to raise my neck above the waters to survive one more breath. We're going to be preaching Jonah in a couple of weeks. Jonah quotes from Psalm 42 when he's in the belly of the fish. This is a graphic. This is expressing a cry of agony. But he's not agnostic. He's not an atheist. He's not an inconsistent Southern Baptist. He believes and knows that God is not the author of evil, but there's not one thing that can happen in his life apart from his Father. What is he speaking about? Who is he talking about? He's talking about God. He's the same God he's been panting for, remembering of good days gone by. He knows that though God feels absent, God mysteriously is involved in his sufferings. Friends, our feelings don't always tell us the truth. Our feelings help us see how we are doing. But only God can help us see what he is doing. Let me say that again. Our feelings don't always tell us the truth. Our feelings help us see how we are doing. But only God can help us see what he is doing. Sign number one was a spiritually dehydrated soul. Sign number two of the spiritual depression, a decline in earthly pleasures. A decline in earthly pleasures. Look at verse three, the second half of verse three. My tears have been my food day and night. The psalmist humbly acknowledges that though his spiritual life was certainly dry and drowning, his physical body. We are embodied souls, by the way. We have to acknowledge both. We are spiritual beings in a real, fully complex human body. And by the way, when we're glorified in heaven, we will have a real glorified human body. But here, his spiritual depression is affecting his bodily health. When he got depressed, he didn't eat. Food was no longer a pleasure. 
Instead of spending his days putting food to his face and his mouth, the only thing that was flooding his face was his tears. And this is not uncommon for people who experience varying degrees or bouts with depression. Other common symptoms, physicians know this, I've known this, a depression has been a part of my life at various seasons. A six other common symptoms, Christian or non-Christian alike, how depression can touch our bodies. Number one, weight loss or weight gain. Weight loss or weight gain. Some of us lose our appetites and don't care to eat at all. Others of us comfort ourselves by eating and craving unhealthy foods when we're sad or depressed. Second common bodily sign is sleep disturbance. Sleep disturbance. Having trouble falling asleep, waking up at night around two or three in the morning, staring at the ceiling, having your thoughts flooded with anxiety or hopelessness. For some, it's excessive sleep, sleeping way beyond what your normal body needs because you don't want to get out of bed and face another day's pain again. Number three, there's fatigue, loss of energy, and lethargy. Fatigue, loss of energy, and lethargy. Some of the simplest tasks that you used to do without thinking can sometimes feel nearly impossible during depression. Answering the phone, taking care of personal hygiene, responding to texts, checking the mail, and the list goes on and on. Number four, agitation, restlessness, anxiety, and irritability. Agitation, restlessness, anxiety, and irritability. Irrational worry and feeling that something awful will happen are often following you around every week, if not every day. Sometimes those with perfectionistic tendencies get tied up in extreme knots, always feeling like they're walking on a tightrope, where that if you don't prove yourself, or if you let others down, you'll be a total failure in life. Fifth, feelings of worthlessness and unreasonable guilt. Feelings of worthlessness and unreasonable guilt. Everything in the world is seen through a dark and pessimistic lens. You see yourself as useless. Life feels meaningless. The future feels hopeless. And number six, thoughts of suicide. Thoughts of suicide. For some, the darkness can so plague their focus in life they don't see the point of living anymore. Both Moses in Numbers 11, Elijah, 1 Kings 19, and Job in a variety of places in his long story all faced painful moments in their life where they thought it would be better to be dead than alive. None of them took their own life, but they often wished God would take it for them. Even the Apostle Paul who wrote vast majorities of the New Testament, at one point in his suffering, literally said, 2 Corinthians 1.8, despaired of life itself. Paul knew what it was like. Spurgeon knew what it was like. Moses knew what it was like. Elijah knew what it was like. Jonah knew what it was like. Your pastor knows what it is like. Friends, saints of old, saints today, have experienced, are experiencing, and will experience various waves of that dark tsunami of depression. If you're here this morning and you're experiencing 
any of these type of symptoms, spiritually or bodily, don't keep that to yourself. Share that with someone you trust. Share that with your elders. Share it with a close friend. You may need to go to see a physician, especially if your bodily health is suffering in immense ways. Don't keep that darkness and pain to yourself. Sign one was a spiritually dehydrated soul. Sign two, a decline in earthly pleasures. Sign three, an unhealthy nostalgia of days gone by. An unhealthy nostalgia of days gone by. Look at verse four again. In verse four, this is very revealing. He says, these things I remember, bringing up the past. As I pour out my soul, how will we go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And this is someone who's remembering a mountaintop experience in his life with God. And this is what it feels like even in a smaller way, where Sundays you feel full and built up and encouraged, and then you wake up on Monday going, I feel like a train hit me, Pastor. Where did Sunday go? I said, welcome to the real Christian life. God sometimes pours out the showers to fill our soul on Sunday so that we're wanting it even more next Sunday. That's why you need the local church. That's why I need the local church. And friends, nothing forbids us from gathering every day of the week. I can't preach that many sermons right now, but we can encourage each other, pray for one another. But friends, one of the things that you find up that comes up in depression, and even the psalmist here does, is that sometimes we can be stuck living in the past. Even trying to relive really good moments. I mean, verse four, he's talking about revival. He's talking about public worship. He's talking about a sweet season in his life. J.I. Packer once said this though, live in the present moment. Daydreaming and indulgence of nostalgia are unhappy habits making for unrealism and discontent. Friends, if you're trying to help someone who feels stuck in the past or they're replaying a sweet season of their life, they wish they could come back, listen carefully. Tell them to thank God for that chapter in their life, but help them put their focus on what God has before them right now. Uh, Friends, when we are coming alongside loved ones, we should be good listeners, but pay attention to the story. People who are caught up in some bout with depression have a false narrative going on in their life. They find themselves at some part in the story and they feel stuck. They need to be helped to see a bigger story of what God is doing in our past, present, and in the future. Sign number four, a painful cycle of perplexing why questions. A painful cycle of perplexing why questions. Did you notice the multiple times the psalmist raises a cry in the form of a question? He says, verse two, when? Verse 3 and 10, where? Verse 5, 9 and 11, why? When will I sense God's loving presence again? Where is God in my suffering? Why am I so sad? What is wrong with me? Friends, have you been there? 
Do you ask those questions? Well, those are the questions that the saints of old ask. God is not intimidated by our what, when, why, or even how long questions. His people have been asking it for a very long time. And he knows how to answer them perfectly in his own way. Again, Spurgeon is such a wonderful example. He is, he's a dear brother. Though he dead, his faith still speaks to me. Spurgeon would write volumes over his own depression, taking Psalm 42 as one of many of them. And Spurgeon, though he had an amazing pen and amazing speaking ability, listen to how he described depression in his own life and from those who he counseled. He said it was like those who traverse the howling desert. We endure winters. We are bruised as a cluster, trodden in the wine press. We enter the foggy day amidst storms like those caught in a hurricane. The waters roll continually, wave upon wave. Does that sound familiar? Over the tops of us, we are like those haunted with dread in the dark dungeon or sitting in a chimney corner under an accumulation of pains, weaknesses, and sorrows. We sit in darkness like one who is chilled and benumbed and over whom death is slowly creeping. We are as a panting warrior, poor fainting soldiers crying out for relief from the long fight of affliction. So if that's where you might be this morning, or you're trying to help someone who is, what do we do? What did Spurgeon do? What did the psalmist do? What would God have us do? Treatment step number one. What is the treatment and cure? Treatment step number one. It begins with an honest and transparent confession to God. It begins with an honest and transparent confession to God. The whole psalm is bookended with his soul crying out to God. John Bunyan once said, Sincerity opens its heart to God and tells him the case plainly. True prayer feels, sighs, groans, and bubbles out of the heart as some heavy burden lies upon it or some sweet sense of mercy received is appreciated. Oh, the heat, strength, life, vigor, and affection that is in true prayer. It begins with talking and crying out to God. Treatment step number two. Make an honest and transparent confession to godly friends about how you're really doing. We need to be honest with God. But remember, Psalm 42 was publicly read and sung. We know how the psalmist was doing. He's not eating, verse 3. He's living in the past. He's stuck at a moment in time he can't get his mind out of, verse 4. He's experienced pain and distress from ungodly people who are verbally assaulting, verbally abusing, verbally demeaning him. Verse 9. From one of the ways that God gets us back up on our feet again is by leaning on Him and leaning on one another. Find someone who you trust is a safe place 
and tell them how you're doing. Treatment step number three, humble yourself to God's sovereignty even in the depression. Humble yourself to God's sovereignty even in the depression. Remember verse seven, whose waves was it? Whose breakers was it? The Lord sent them. God's ways are far beyond our ways. But his ways are always best, even when they don't make sense to us in the present. A Joni Erickson Tata, who's been paralyzed for over 50 years of her life, has once said, God will give you many things you can't handle, but he can. Ask him how you might glorify him in your suffering. Ask him to remove the suffering, heal your body, relieve the pain, but if he doesn't, that God might be glorified through the suffering, even in your pain. Treatment step number four, 